This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, spiritual teacher and author Ajashanti discusses his belief that there are two spiritual instincts that reside deep within everyone. This talk was recorded on February 24, 2017, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Nice to uh, be back here with you. Uh, please excuse my gravelly voice. It's post, it's, I call it my post-flu voice. So I'm <laughs> just recovered from the flu, but my voice is still a little bit lagging behind. But nonetheless, um, I thought I wanted to explore with you and talk a little bit about sort of the spiritual, the spiritual journey of in the spiritual journey of awakening to our true nature. But I want to talk about it in a way that's maybe a little less simplistic than we often hear about it. Um, part of the reasons it can be presented in a simplistic way, because some simplistic uh, teaching, a kind of simplistic teaching can have great power because it can be very focused. And... Any spiritual teacher knows, you know, if that the more focused your teaching is, given what you're trying to help someone to realize, the more powerful it is. Um, but for this conference, and given what is being explored during this conference, I really wanted to look at that journey because I think that that journey of our own awakening has a lot to do with what this whole conference is about, and of course it has a tremendous amount to do with our own psychology. Most people that I know come to spirituality through some sort of suffering. Not always, it's not the avenue that everybody comes through, but I think my experience is that the vast majority of people come from something that has um, compelled them towards a, a deeper exploration of themselves, a deeper exploration of life, whether they think of it in their own personal context or in the context of God or, or any context you could, you could think of. So much of it comes from some, some deep spiritual or some deep experience. Sometimes that experience is, is a difficult experience or often a host of difficult experiences mixed together with, I find that most people I meet have moments, kind of transcendent moments, moments that don't fit in with the kind of common moments that we have day to day. And it's one of the kind of the secrets, I think, that often doesn't get communicated well is that to have these these little moments of some sort of transcendence, some sort of little moment of a kind of understanding or when you felt like you were almost brought into a, a shown just a little different way of being or maybe a very greatly different way of being. 
is a very common part of human experience. It's, there's nothing particularly unique about it. It's actually very, very common. And most people come to spirituality by a combination of either, either their own suffering and also having moments that they, that kind of almost take them for a moment a little bit outside of time and space or show them something quite unique and beautiful about the, the current and present moment. Often people also are motivated by their concern for others or the welfare of the world. I've often thought that any really deeply authentic spiritual impulse always it has to, by its very nature, include our, our concern or our love for each other, for the welfare of each other, whether it's the welfare of other, each other as human beings, whether it's the environment we might be in, but somehow something, I think, is part of us it's often part of our, the more mature part of us, the part of us that's a little bit more together, that actually has the capacity to, to be concerned, to, to actually have a deep feeling for the whole, for, for all beings, for the welfare of all beings. And so the spiritual impulse is a curious mixture of these very sort of personal motivations um, and also these more expansive, altruistic motivations that really care about the whole. And again, this is, this is a very common part of the spiritual impulse itself. I think if we feel our way into it, not just think our way around it, but actually feel our way into it. Um, but I want to talk about a couple of different qualities of of when we start to kind of awaken to our nature. Um, and I like to, 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 to locate these, even though this is kind of metaphorical, it's metaphorical and at the same time there's some kind of concrete reality to it at the same time. So it's kind of paradox. So, but, so don't hold it too tight and too concretely, but don't hold it too loosely and too metaphorically, right? Often, I think, what we, part of what we hear about in a lot of spiritual teachings, a lot of teachers point to this. I will point to this in my own teaching as well at times. It's what I call sort of the very, it's a very sort of masculine impulse. And when I say masculine, I don't necessarily mean to limit that to a given gender. Because some women have a very masculine spiritual impulse, some men have a very feminine spiritual impulse, and vice versa. Um, but in, a gen in talking in most general terms, there is this impulse that we have towards transcendence, towards something that's beyond, let's say, beyond our current sense of ourself, beyond our normal sort of everyday consciousness, right? Is there something that's deeper than just the mundane facts of human existence. Getting up in the morning and going to work and falling in love and, you know, whatever, whatever happens from there. Falling out of love, raising children or not raising children and old age and at the end, a, hopefully a more or less graceful exit. But amongst those realities of all of our lives, 
there's also the transcendent impulse. Right? This is why religions have been been part of the human makeup for tens and ten, tens, if not hundreds and thousands of years. You know, if you go back to a lot of the earliest cave paintings, there are there are transcendent or spiritual overtones to to quite a bit of them. So this transcendent aspect, it's really, if you hear teachings that whether you, you think of them as non-dual or, or Advaitic Vedanta or in Christianity, there's the, there's the sort of via negativa. Um, almost every tradition has its own form of the, of the deeply transcendent teachings. And in their negative form, I think that most people in this room are, are very well acquainted with, there as a spiritual strategy, because as far as I'm concerned, spiritual teachings themselves are best approached as strategies, not necessarily as descriptions of reality, even though they're often presented as descriptions of reality, I think they're much more useful seen as strategies. Strategies for what? Strategies to awaken, strategies to penetrate into the deepest core of the human experience. So in the negative strategies, they go something like this. If we were to, to look, look within, and we start to get very serious and very precise, and we start to really get precise about where is this thing called me? And I don't mean, of course, when you go to school here, you learn a lot of stuff about the self and ego and, and, and all of that. But I mean, if we, if we could possibly, if it's possible for us to do this, if we could possibly suspend everything we know so that we can actually come back into experience, into the absolute present moment of experience. So we're not viewing the current moment of experience through the lens of our knowledge, even though that can be very, very useful at times. But when we can kind of suspend what we know and start to look at our experience from our own, as I like to say, on the, on the authority of your own experience, and we start to look for, for ourself, where is that? Because you would, you would imagine this thing that we refer to hundreds of times a day, we say either me or I, almost every sentence starts with it, you would think it would be the easiest thing in your experience to find. You know, it would be easier to find than your hand or your shoe or your, you know, or your wallet or your bag or whatever it is. But when we really get, like, what actually in my experience, not in my definitions, but in my actual experience, where is that? And what is it precisely? And when we really look at that, a strange thing happens very, very quickly. If we can get underneath our ideas and we really look for this thing called myself, we run it very quickly into this very odd paradox. The paradox is, well, I'm here. I feel, that I feel myself to be. In one sense, the, the one thing you can be certain about 
is your sense of being, I am, I exist. Even if you were to doubt your existence, you would have to exist in order to doubt it. So even your doubt proves your existence. So everybody has this sense of being, the sense of existing. Everyone in this room, I am, I, I exist right now, right here, in any moment. Now let me see if I can find in a very precise way exactly what that is. And very quickly you run into this strange paradox. I'm here, but I'm having a hard time finding me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You have, you know, you might come up with thoughts or images of yourself or memories, of course, will often start to flood into your mind and, and your your, your tendencies or your habits, you know, or your preferences or all of these. But of course, none of these are always with you all the time. There's times when you're not thinking about yourself. There's th times when you're not obsessed with your preferences. There's times when you're not remembering your past. And yet, even in those times, you still are. So if we really get precise, of course, in psychology, I would imagine, you can tell me, but I've always thought if we, if, we look at the self, if we look at self from a psychological point of view, it's actually more of a process than a thing. We should actually say, I'm selfing. It should be a verb, actually, rather than a noun or a pronoun. If we look for it, however, not as a process, but as a thing, we curiously can't come up with it. Where is it precisely? Right? You have memories. Okay. Where is the you who's, who has the memories? You have habits. Where is the you who has the habits? And this curious thing starts to happen where you feel like I'm here and I'm present. And yet I can't find myself as something specific. Like I could find my hand or my shoe or the clothes I'm wearing or the seat that I'm sitting on or the ground underneath my feet. All of those are imminently findable, instantly. But this thing called me isn't like that, right? It's more like a process. It's more like a verb. If it's moving, it seems to be there. You feel it. If it's not moving, you can't really find it. It's like the wind. The wind is kind of a movement. It's a process. It's a, it's a verb. So part of spiritual inquiry is starting to look for yourself and failing to find. Because when we fail to find, it actually opens us, starts to open within our mind a kind of gap through which a kind of transcendent movement can occur. Right? I often ask myself, who are you if you don't think, if you don't refer to a thought or a feeling to tell you who you are? It puts the mind in like tilt, doesn't it? It kind of goes. <laughs> so that's the only way I know how to reference myself is when I think and what I feel, right? But if you weren't to think or feel even for, say, five seconds, you don't just go poof into a puff of smoke, right? Your body doesn't fall on the floor. You don't die. It's not the end of your life. Nothing actually happens. So certainly, whatever you are can exist perfectly fine in the absence of thinking, even though people usually are compulsively thinking. 
And even if we don't have a particular, say, emotion at, a mo- at some particular moment, that we don't have some particular feeling. But these are just ways to kind of open up the mind. What am I if I don't refer to a single thought or a single feeling to tell me what I am? A question like that is not meant to get a nice, pithy answer. As long as you're giving an answer, you're getting it wrong, right? It's kind of like a, in Zen, a koan. As long as you come up with really smart-sounding answers, you just get dismissed, you know, because it says, I'm still caught in my mind. But if we can open up to that gap, which deep, a lot of deep spiritual questions are actually meant for, they're meant to open up a gap, almost to kind of throw a wrench in the whole conceptual machinery for a moment, so that it can just stop cranking away, right? Now, if, if in that moment realization was to occur, aha, we may realize you may actually feel, sense, not just understand, but really feel it as much as the average human being feels themselves to be very identified with their memory and their current feelings and their current preferences and their bodies and their minds and all of that. In the same way that people feel like that's me, just imagine if all that kind of in a flash transferred from all those definitions back to the mere fact of Conscious awareness. Because generally, unconsciously, what we think is, is I, I'm the one that's conscious. Me. I'm the one that's aware. Funny thing is, when you go looking for that one, you can't quite find it. Where is that me that's aware? Where is that me that stands behind my own consciousness, my own awareness. Where is it? What is it? Why is it when I look for it in a very specific and precise way, I keep not being able to find it? And at some point, it just kind of dawns on you, almost like a light switch going on. You don't find it actually because it's not there. And it's possible at that instant that in a very spontaneous way, your sense of being, your sense of existing, comes to this sort of what I would think of as almost the first quality of awakeness, which is what I call awakened mind. I know in spirituality there's so much talk about going beyond the mind that awakened mind may sound like a strange way to define it, but I think you'll get the sense. If you just feel into your sense, the sense of awareness or consciousness, if you will, just the sense and the feel of it itself, not the definition of it, the sense of it. And when we can get very direct and very simple, which simply means in our actual experience and our actual perception, rather than our thoughts about our experience and our thoughts about our perception, that conscious awareness has this very spacious, open feel. It's like a spacious, open 
field of nothingness. There's nothing to it. So for everybody in this room, let's say, if you were to just feel and notice your own awareness, the awareness that's hearing what I say, that's, say, looking, looking, at, looking at me, I guess, at, the, at most of you, but the feel of that awareness is, it's there, isn't it? But you can't grasp it. It doesn't have a color. It doesn't have a name. It doesn't have a taste. It doesn't have an ideology. It's not a Buddhist awareness or a Christian awareness or an atheist awareness. It's just an awareness awareness. Right? So it's something that's actually more like nothing. So it's intangible. Often we think, you know, when you talk of spirituality, we think something's intangible. We think, oh, well, that's very fanciful. That's what's like spiritual jargon for things that, you know, may or may not actually exist. But most of the qualities that most of us live, that propel us in our lives, are actually intangible. Awareness isn't the only intangible thing around. How about love? You can experience love or joy. What does joy look like? How heavy is it? What color is it? So a lot, of, a lot of these fundamental human experiences and actually the, the act of perception itself is intangible, ungraspable, and yet absolutely present. You can feel love even if you can't put a color and you can't weigh it and it, and it doesn't have an ideology and it doesn't have a religious affiliation, it doesn't have an intellectual affiliation, but when you feel love, you feel love, don't you? When you feel joy, you feel joy. When you feel a sense of freedom, even though you can't grasp it, there's no mistaking what you're experiencing. So we can, we can sense into these things, we can feel into them, which is itself a, a rather useful spiritual practice. But when we bring a kind of deep questioning to the whole process, that questioning can add a kind of spark, it can be kind of a, a catalyst. As long as the in, in, when we do inquiry, we remember that we're not inquiring like we're in a classroom. Do you know what I mean? Usually when people do spiritual inquiry, they approach it like they're in the classroom. They're supposed to get the right answer. And if you don't get the right answer, then you've somehow failed. In spiritual inquiry, it's kind of the opposite. If you keep coming up with really smart sounding answers, you've failed. And if you don't come up with an answer, you're starting to get it, right? You're, so you're, you're starting, the door may be opening to getting a, a true, not so much an answer as a resolution. So when we awaken on the level of what I call mind, we sense ourselves to be, not just experience, but to actually be awareness itself. That's our experience of being. Some said, what's it most like to be you? If we had that, that quality of awakening, we would describe awareness. And we might say something like spacious and empty and nothing. And all these words that sound rather negative, right? But when you actually experience it, it's, it's anything but negative. It's very free. 
The reason that it is free is because our identity is no longer housed in the mind. It's no longer contained in thought and in memory. I'm not what I think, in other words. It's an extremely uh, profound and liberating experience to have. It's not, strictly speaking, it's not just an experience, but we really don't have another word for it. Now often, this is often talked a lot today in these days, especially in non-dual circles, right? I am pure awareness, I'm pure consciousness, I've awakened, and often that is what's talked about as non-duality. Now, how that gets sold as non-duality, I, 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 I have no capacity to understand. Because what it really is, is not non-duality, it's radical duality, right? I am the nothing, the awake nothing, as opposed to everything else, right? I'm not a thought form, a feeling form, a body form, a, all the form, I'm not that. When you wake up from that, of course, it's very, very liberating. But it's, it's, in the end, it's kind of partial, a partial awakening. But a partial awakening is still feels, especially initially, quite extraordinary. But you, you do get the world down to a nice manageable duality. Like I said, I'm the nothing, the awake nothing, and then there's everything else. Right? So you got two things going on fundamentally. Whereas before... You know, you thought you were, the, you were, you thought where you were a million different things, right? As it says in, in, in the Bible of when it talks about, what was it? Legion. Remember his name? Legion, the, the kind of crazy one. That's a good, it's a perfect word for ego. Ego is legion. There's not just one self in most people. There's many selves. Have you ever noticed? And they're competing. One feels good. It feels worthy, right? It feels like it's accomplished some things. It, it likes itself, and that's one self. And right next to that self can be another self that feels quite unworthy. It's quite terrified that somebody might discover that it even exists, right? Because it holds its sort of dark identity. It's frightened. It, no matter what happens, it, it, it just it never feels like it quite deserves it. It feels diminished in so many ways. And then there's another dozens more. So this is part of the difficulty of ego, ego consciousness. And when I say ego consciousness, I don't say that with any judgment. It's simply a state of consciousness. It's neither good or bad or right or wrong. It's just the name of a particular way of experiencing oneself and the world. It happens to be legion. There's many of them in any person. And most, and they're usually in competition. I imagine, I'm just guessing now, tell me if I'm wrong, but I imagine part of what people that go, go to a school like this learn is to get some of these competing selves to, to get to know each other. First, to acknowledge them, to see that they actually are there, that they actually exist, and to get them out of the shadows, to get them out of the places of fear and denial and shame, and bring them into the light of being so they can start to kind of integrate together a little more and you get a little more, you get a more cohesive sense of self. The more cohesive your sense of self is, the less conflicted it feels, right? But there's usually a whole lot of unmasking 
that happens on the journey of getting all those selves to kind of come together in a cohesive way, you could say a friendly way, right? And spirituality is kind of, in its deeper sense, the, eso- the esoteric or inner form of it is kind of going beyond that. It's, it's, it's seeing that even that even a very coherent, healthy sense of self is actually still kind of a, a phenomena within, within consciousness. It's there. It's not there all the time, too. In anybody's day, you forget about yourself for moments that probably don't last as long as you'd like. They often happen so fast you don't even notice they're happening. You get involved in work. You're accomplishing a task. You're doing something. You kind of forget about yourself. All there is is, is the task, you know. There's many moments in any day of self-forgetting. I mean that in a positive sense. But when we, when we awaken, this self, whether it's, whether it's a, a coherent, functional, relatively healthy self or ego, or it's a very incoherent, very unhealthy, very unhappy sense of self, when we awaken, that's what we awaken from, doesn't mean it necessarily goes anywhere. And sometimes great parts of it kind of fall away. And other times, much more of it stays intact. You never know. But your sense of being, your sense of self, may not even use this, the word self anymore, may or may not be relevant, is kind of this spacious awareness. It's, I call it awakened on the level of mind because it's an awakening from identification with mind. which actually allows you to use the mind in a much more precise way when you're not all identified with it. Now, this is a transcendent movement, right? You've transcended. It's literally an up and outward movement. If you were to follow the energy of somebody that's having this kind of awakening, their, their energy or their consciousness is literally up and out. It like, literally up and right out of the... The, the top of the chakra. It's very common for people that have this. They feel like their location is no longer behind their eyes, but it's a little bit above and behind their head, right? Because in a certain sense, consciousness has moved up and out of mind. So you can feel like you're kind of floating a little bit above. Right? And that's the feeling of things. The transcendent feel is to be sort of above things. I don't mean above things in the sense of better, although that's a persistent danger. When you come into that kind of awakening, is you can get very, you can get not just have a different, ident- different sense of your being, but you can start to think, well, look at me, look how grand I am. I've had the great awakening, right? So this self thing, or as part of what you're talking about in this conference, narcissism, It's very rare that all the narcissism, both positive and negative, can get blown out of the system with one awakening, no matter how powerful it is. The thing about ego mind, it's incredible what it can withstand. (laughs) It's like like the psychological version of a roach, you know, it's just... It's just, you think it's gone, you know, you exterminate the whole house, and you haven't seen it around for months, 
And just about the time you think you're showing your neighbors, look at my house, there's no roaches in my house, one crawls across the floor, you know? <laughs> so you can really think, I've woken up from all personal identity and, you know, whoopee, I'm looking. So there's, there's a very, there's a great, there is a danger of, of a kind of narcissism. In Zen, we, we would call, we have a phrase for getting caught in this particular form of emptiness as uh, it's, it's much more benign, being drunk on emptiness. Because it, it's a way of, they say drunk on emptiness because it's not necessarily badly intentioned. It may have some pretty unfortunate ramifications, but it's not badly intentioned. You just get a little too full of yourself, right? You, you just start thinking you're a little too special, if you know what I mean. It's easy to, for awakening to make you feel special, even when you're on guard for it. So this is that part of, if we break it back to something very basic, this is that part of a human being. You know, when you say, I'd just like to be, you know, done with this. I'd just like to be, you're in some uncomfortable situation. You'd just like to be free of it. You'd like to be away from it. In a very sort of convoluted sense, that's the transcendent impulse. I would like to get, I would like to wake up and out of this, right? And that's the convoluted version. A more mature or spiritual version is just the desire for the transcendence itself. For something that's not limited. The feeling of the instinct to not experience yourself in such a limited way, in such a way where you feel too confined. I think it's a very common experience for human beings. Like you just feel too confined. Like you want, you ever felt like you wanted to get out of your, whatever the confines are, the confines of your thinking or your feeling of that moment. Or when you feel that way, part of it is actually, your, is, 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 is also the transcendent impulse. And part of the awakening actually achieves that to a certain extent. Because you literally are up and out. And people, if they describe it, they'll, well, this is why my hands, or their, your hands go here. Because this is where it is. Pure awareness, if you go emptiness, vast, open, spaciousness of pure awareness, it's, it's all here. Right? That's awakening on the level of mind. You can be really awake on the level of mind in an emotional basket case. Because that doesn't mean anything's happened here in the heart, right? You can, be, you can actually be very cold, too. This can even a great example of this, and I'm not being critical because we all go through our versions of this. There's a very famous um, depiction of Ramana Maharshi when his father had passed. And, of course, Ramana, when he had this awakening, he... which People forget because we always think of Ramana just as a pure saint. He stole money from his mom, <laughs> went to the dresser, stole some money, and took off and was inextricably drawn to this holy mountain. And he didn't tell anybody, and as a 16-year-old kid, he went off to the holy mountain of Anarachala, and he never ended up leaving it the rest of his life. Right? So that was his way of going. Some years later, his father passes, and his mother comes to ask, say, ask him to come home. Of course, it took her a while to find out where her 16-year-old son was. 
You can imagine how worried the mother was. Anybody in here that's a mother or a father can realize this, this caused them, I'm sure, no, no amount of anxiety and worry. But she found out where he was. His father had died. And he basically said, look, you know, what happens, happens. Everything's sort of fate, and I'm not coming home. There, it, when you read the depiction, there, there's, there's a little bit of coldness about it, right? There's, there's a little bit cold. It's a very, very transcendent sort of place, right? And so she left, and he stayed on the mountain, and, you know, I think, at least in my depiction, he moved far, far beyond that as time went on. But so there can be a coldness that comes, there can be with that aloofness. And we can still, just because you have that realization, doesn't mean that emotionally you got your act together. You can be very clear on the, awaken, on the level of awakened mind and not know how to be in a relationship with another human being at all. Just because you've woken up from something doesn't mean you've gained ac expertise on the thing you've woken up from, right? So, nor does it mean you've, so far, you've noticed what's left out of this description of vast, spacious awareness. What's left out of the description is unity, oneness, love, right? Or as what the great Zen, one of the great Zen masters, Dogen, his, his, his description of unity consciousness was an absolute intimacy with the 10,000 things. And when they say in Buddhism, 10,000 things, they mean everything. An absolute intimacy. You know that feeling of being closer than close? So close there's no distance in those rare moments of just exquisitely profound intimacy. If we even extended that even further, so there's so much intimacy that there wasn't even closeness, there was just a sense of at-one-ment, right? This is when we're now talking about the awakening on what I call a level of heart. You can be in an awakened mind space and be defending, defending yourself emotionally right and left. We've seen it, you know, early or in the 50s and 60s and 70s when a lot of the sort of gurus came over from the East. And a lot of them came in out of these sort of monastic systems. And how do they deal with all the heart stuff in most monastic systems? Not only Eastern, but Western, like relationships, you know, and family and all that, you know, complicated emotional stuff. Basically, the way that it's often dealt with is you just don't deal with it. <laughs> you go to the monastery or to the ashram and you become celibate and you don't have these kind of relationships. And in modern psychological terms, we would say you avoid it. Right? <laughs> Now, even for most people that have come in these, through these systems, that's not particularly satisfying. <laughs> but when some of those people that did come through these systems came here, and all of a sudden they're not in the monastery, they're not in the ashram, they're teaching and they're, they're surrounded by laymen, folks like you and me, 
And they're, you know, and all of a sudden it's, woo, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. None of that was in the ashram. <laughs> and so we, we saw quite a few of them have these catastrophic falls, whether it was the abuse of relationship issues, the abuse of money issues, of power issues, a lot of stuff that really has to do with the emotional life and emotional maturity, right? So one of the myths about awakening is that if you awaken, number one, that all awakening is the same. It's not. We can have awakening on different levels. Sometimes it's all the levels and sometimes it's just one. And that awakening means you gained you expertise on the area that you woke up from. It doesn't necessarily work that way. So when people are starting to come into the heart, you know, to awaken in the level of heart, what usually happens, now you, have, now you have all sorts of emotions coming up. The most predominant one when it comes to the ecstas- what I call the existential emotion. Because spiritual, spirituality in its strict sense, and I'm very aware that it never behaves according to the strict sense, but in its strict sense, it's dealing with the existential issues of life. Who am I? What is God? What is reality? Or simply what now is going on here? Right? The deep existential issues of life. So one of the existential issues of life that we run into here, some people are terrified to wake up from their idea of themselves. They'll resist it with everything they have. But most people are, have fear in their emotional life, because almost everybody has had some amount of emo- emotional wounding. We've had intellectual wounding. We've been programmed to believe a whole lot of things about ourselves that are uh, that's utter nonsense, and believe things about the world and each other that doesn't end up to be true. That's intellectual programming, but we're also emotionally programmed. Because you, you, any time you've ever seen a little kid in a grocery store having a meltdown? Or do you remember when you had your meltdowns? I can remember a few that I had when I was a little kid. That's when a child is experiencing an emotion that's too big for them to contain. They're just not mature enough to, to contain that much energy. And they're just, and they're just, they melt down. They can't contain it. It starts to spill out and they just start to kind of come to pieces. It can be about anything. It can simply be because mom doesn't want to buy cornflakes that, that day. Or it can be about things that are much more serious. You know, it can be about abandonment. It can be about abuse. It can be about all sorts of issues that are emotionally, can be overwhelming for a, for a quite mature adult. But in our younger lives, we experience very profound emotional happenings that can be overwhelming. Like I just, I'm not there yet to, to contain that, to allow that to happen. So we often run into some of these as, as we kind of come down and our own deeper existential sense of our being or our more awakened sense of our being comes into the heart. The benefit of the heart, of course, is this is also literally a sensing organ here. This is where we sense unity, where we intuitively feel sameness. 
as they would say in India, the, the, the revelation of I am that. Whether that is God, whether that is a, gra- a piece of grass or a flowing brook or a honking car outside or your neighbor or anything else, that's the unity. Unity is perceived through the heart. And I don't mean perceived as simply a gushy, mergy feeling. Because unity is not merging. Unity is sameness, oneness, which is different than merging, right? When we have the human desire to merge, it's actually, at least as I see it, we're actually participating in a deeper existential urge also. The deeper existential merge urge to move beyond boundaries, to have an experience that's not limited to, to boundaries between me and you and this and that. Spiritually, that finds its completion when the boundaries give way. And that's when we experience a kind of unity. Everybody wants the unity, by the way. Everybody wants unity. Whenever I'm teaching, everyone, they, they, if I talk about emptiness, everyone, why don't you talk about unity? <laughs> Everybody wants unity. And every ego wants to find out that it's everything anyway. <laughs> but when the awakening is here, here it's just vast open space. It's, it's defined kind of by a sense of freedom and openness. Here, if you can even kind of get a taste of presence, there's a warmth. Things take, do take, when you feel a sense of presence, when you walk, you can feel, if you're sensitive, you could feel presence any time. But if you walk into any place where some really deep kind of, any kind of deep worship has happened, or you walk into the, some, one of those, some of those cathedrals or old, old churches in Europe, and you just walk in and you can just, it's full of presence, right? And it, it kind of resonates with you. You can feel presence, but that sense of aliveness, that sense of sacredness, that sense of timelessness and beauty, right? This is really at a rudimentary sense when we feel presence, we're starting to feel what's possible through the sense organ of, the, of the, this area. When I say the heart, I don't just mean your physical heart. I mean this whole area, right? By the way, in our here, we also hear in our minds, there's thoughts that define us in a separate way. And judgments that define us in a separate way. Here, it's feelings that define you. Right? Most people, their, e- their ego mind has a very, I call it like an, an egoic North Pole. When you feel a particular way, you feel most like yourself. Do you know what I mean? And it's not always positive. Some people feel most like themselves when they feel really rotten. They, they don't like it, but that's how they know themselves. You know what I mean? You can get into sort of a victim identity. You can get into all sorts of emotional identities that are very, that are very challenging, but still they can be very familiar or it can be something very pleasant, right? 
So when we wake up from our separate self-sense on the level of heart, we're actually waking up from identifying ourselves through emotion. There's nothing wrong with emotion. We don't want to get rid of emotion. But we just want to let go of being identified with particular emotion. Right? Unworthiness is an emotional identification. It's both an intellectual and an emotional identification. You can wake up from the more intellectual part of it and still have the emotional part of it very much alive. Right? It's opposite. You know, if, you, if you're inflated, that's an emotion. Right? If you feel like I'm God's gift to humanity, that's an emotion. Right? So to awaken up from emotion doesn't mean that we're not feeling anymore, that we're never having emotion anymore. They're just not, I, we're not finding self in the emotional body, which is what allows, the, allows us to start to perceive unity and the feeling of that exquisite intimacy and closeness, right? And even if you experience unity, it still doesn't mean that, you've, that you're highly functional in an entirely emotional way. Like I said, you can experience unity, but when you fall in love, you might be, an emo- you might be a relationship wreck, shipwreck, because you still may not be mature in that realm. Just because we wake up from these things doesn't mean we immediately gain expertise in them, right? An awakened person doesn't know anything about theoretical physics. (laughs) The Buddha didn't give him information about physics or about biology or about chemistry or about any of these other things. Because this is really more of, these are existential issues. compassion. You ever notice notice when you have a good day and you feel pretty good about yourself? You just wake up on the right side of the universe for some reason. You notice you're just naturally more compassionate on those days? If somebody needs a little bit of your time or someone's on the street corner asking for a a quarter, you're, you're a bit more likely to take a little time or to give them that dollar or whatever, just naturally because you're not as conflicted. Your emotional energy isn't being all chewed up. And so when it's not being all chewed up in conflicting emotions, you emotionally feel more connected with existence. When we feel emotionally connected with existence, that gives rise to the feeling of compassion. And humility. Natural human. That's not a word that we talk about much these days. It's kind of old-fashioned. I rather like it, actually. Um, today's environment could do with a nice, healthy dose of <laughs> humility, you know. Humility is actually a very sweet, tender, soft, connecting thing to feel. It's actually really, really beautiful. A lot in the West, we have a lot of, I think, we have our sense of humility tied up with humiliation, which you couldn't get two things that are more different, but I think unconsciously sometimes they get mixed up. Okay, I just want to quickly go to the, the, the kind of completion 
down here in the gut. Now down here in the gut, when the, if we call self or ego, here it's a bunch of ideas, images. When you go into your memories and all the rest, that's identification here. Emotion is how you feel, whether you feel worthy or unworthy, and all the other feelings you can feel, there can be identification here or the freedom from it here. But down here, self isn't a thought and it's not a feeling. Down here at the most rudimentary place of origination, you can think of self as simply a clenched fist. If it did have a word, if it had language, it would only have one word, and the word would be no. No. But it doesn't have a word, really. It's just a clenched fist, right? Right in the gut. And every once in a while, you can feel it. You ever felt like you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're just, especially if you get afraid, this clench is clenching very tightly. This is self at a pre-verbal, pre-emotional sense. This is where, this, I don't mean this to be taken concretely true, but imagine you're in your mother's womb. You have everything you need. Your mom is healthy, she doesn't smoke, she doesn't drink, she, you know, she does all the right things. And you're in this wonderful environment, and it's warm, and it's, and it's just fluid, and you're getting, you're getting everything you want, and there's no separation there. And it's warm, right? You're never, you're never cold. It's just this, it's just, boy, it's just the womb of existence, so, right? It's all beautiful. And imagine all of a sudden, this thing called birth happens. And you, you're, you're number one, you're kind of pushed through an opening that's slightly smaller than you would have thought God would have made it. Any mother who has had a baby probably can feel, has felt their own version of that, like, good Lord. And you come out, and can you imagine the first thing you feel? Cold, like the cold air, strange hands pulling at you, lights blaring you in the eyes, possibly you're still halfway, you're still halfway out, your mother's screaming in her, in her pain, and that's your introduction to this? It's easy to understand why, right? Right here in the gut, like, good Lord, no. Is there any way to crawl back in, right? Now, I'm not saying that's concretely how it, how it gets formed, but it gives you the feeling maybe of, of just something that would kind of pull away. It's just the, the primal contraction, the primal contraction. pre-verbal, even pre-emotional. And when our spiritual impulse starts to hit this level, you start to feel the primal, even though it's pre-emotion, when you touch upon it, it evokes an emotion from it. And the emotion is fear. Even more than fear, terror. Like just outrageous irrational terror 
when people touch upon this and, they, and I'm talking to them about it, number one, they almost always put their hand here unconsciously. They don't even know they're doing it. They're saying, Aja, I'm feeling this absolute terror. I sit down to meditate and I'm feeling terrified. And I, I remember feeling ter- terror when I was dealing with my thoughts and, and terror when I was dealing with my emotional life and that kind of fear. But down here, it has no words. It has no images. It has... If anything, it just feels like there's some sort of immense void is just going to swallow me. Some immense blackness is just going to devour me. And I feel inextricably in some strange way, I feel drawn to it. And at the same time, I'm terrified by it. Has anybody ever felt that? For some weird reason, I want to go that direction. And for some other reason, I feel totally repelled by it. Like if I do, I'll be annihilated. Well, annihilation is strong language. It's how it feels. And there's a part of it that's actually true. Because when, when, we, when and if we, the awakening gets down to this level, that clutch lets go. And the, the only way it defines itself is through the grasping, resisting clutch in the gut. That's what it knows. It's not a thing, it's a verb, right? And if it lets go, like if my, my hand makes a fist, if I let go and my, my hand is no longer making a fist, to use dramatic language, my fist has just been annihilated. Now, it's overly dramatic language, but it feels like that's what's happening when someone is getting to this place. And by the way, it's not just as sequential as I'm making it sound. All these centers can wake up at once. Any one of them can wake up, in, independent of the other ones. It can hap- this one can happen first, and then goes here, and they can kind of move around. It's not necessarily one, then two. It's not like going down in an elevator, necessarily. Although, probably 70, 60 to 70 percent of the cases, there is some version of this sort of descending movement. The self, when self at this fundamental level lets go, and by the way, the way it does let go is by accessing something deeper than the survival instinct, because that's what you're dealing with here. You're dealing with the root survival instinct of the body. Fortunately, there is something deeper in us than the survival instinct. If there wasn't, there'd be no way beyond this. What that is, is very hard to conceptualize. It's, prob- it's enough to know that there is something deeper than the survival instinct. And when you come upon it, or when it arises, it simply lets go. Because courage will not do it. I can guarantee you, no amount of courage was going to let go here. But when you access that which is deeper than your will to survive, then this lets go. Because you've accessed the deeper thing.
Now, what sometimes happens, and when someone is dealing with this existential knot here, it's very bad advice to push somebody to sort of leap into that fear. Some fears, it's very, it's very wise. Go into it, open to it, leap into the fear. And it can be a very useful thing. Here, not useful. I've met lots of people who have come to me that have been to spiritual teachers that have kind of pushed them into leaping into this fear. We, our own systems, our own psychology, our own being, has its own wisdom about this. We should never go, we should never be pushed in, nor should we push ourselves in. It's only when the deeper instinct arises within you, and when you do, it will just very simply and unceremoniously let go. There should never be any violence about it, any forcefulness. I think one has to approach this with great um, wisdom. You can just, if someone comes there, they can just sort of be in its atmosphere until the deeper instinct is evoked. And it does get evoked. It does come to the surface. So all along the journey, you see, from the sort of what I call the masculine uh, impulse for transcendence, the feminine impulse towards unity and inclusion. And back down here is we can't even give it any, it's neither masculine or feminine impulse. It's, it's like I said, it's really the survival instinct. And it kind of lives in a very similar way, whether you're masculine, feminine, male or female. It's, it's sort of beyond all the sort of gender references. And all the way along, um, we do have to be, like I said, humility is one of our greatest aids in the spiritual life. Because even awakening on all these levels, like I say, it doesn't necessarily bestow, well, it certainly doesn't bestow perfection on you, nor does it even bestow competency at all levels of being. Because these can sometimes develop fairly independently of other parts of your being. It, it's very unique to each person, how, how it all how it all unfolds. That's why I often say, you know, um, it's a good thing to have a more or less coherent sense of self. Number one, it's easier to let go of the identification with it. And number two, it's what really gives you, it's the avenue through which we find competency in certain areas of life and predominantly lots of relational aspects of life. They, they really flow out of a kind of an integrated self. 
they don't necessarily develop just because you've transcended it all. And in today's world where even the most sincere spiritual practitioner is more and more rarely going to feel drawn to leave the world, one of the challenges that that means is is you don't get to sidestep any part of development. Right? Because you, you because in order to have this and so far, I'm not, I want to open it up for questions, but I just want to make clear that so far I've just talked about this in the sense of realization. I haven't talked about it at all in any of these three centers too. It, just because you awaken doesn't mean you know how to embody and live from it. That usually doesn't happen like with a snap of a finger. It usually doesn't happen overnight, no matter how strong the spiritual unfolding has been, no matter how powerful it's been. To embody what we realize, at least as far as I have seen in my experience, seems to be an infinite journey. Any spiritual realization can happen like a snap of a finger, and it can happen at any point in the developmental cycle, irregardless of age and most emotional maturity and all of that. And it can happen like that. To embody and live this stuff out in the way we move through life and meet all the challenges of life, that is the, that's a journey of embodiment, and that is a journey that seems to me without end. Because we're dealing with something that's inherently, we're, t- we're dealing with the infinite embodying itself and expressing itself through the human being, through, the human via- through our humanity. Because we will always have humanity. Part of the dangers of spirituality is to think that I'm going to deal with my humanity by leaving it all behind. And you just don't. In fact, one of the most beautiful examples of that that I have found, because most, in most spiritual stories, the humanity is edited out of the superman or the superwoman, of the, whatever, the, the spiritual person that's being you know, depicted. But I often recall, um, strangely enough, because we think this person is sort of the ultimate spiritual superman, at least from one traditional point of view, in the Gospels of, of Jesus, he's, he has a number of times where he is very, very human. And yet he's also upheld as, you know, some in that tradition, the Son of God. Other traditions outside of that would see him as sort of an enlightened being. However you see him, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he has this foreknowledge of what's going to happen to him, be hung on the cross and all the stuff that's going to happen, and he literally falls to his knees and he's in absolute tears and he's terrified and he's in dread. He's so terrified he asks his disciples to be with him for comfort. I always thought, now that's humility, for a spiritual teacher to come to their students and say, I need you right now. I need you. Come, be with me. I really, really need you. And the intensity of what he was going through was so strong, at least mythologically, the, stu- the s- disciples couldn't even stay awake, right? They went to sleep three times. Every- everything seems to come in threes. But, but they literally, it was just, to me, it was a, a way of depicting the intensity. You know how when things get super intense, there's a tendency to kind of, Look, kind of go a little unconscious, whether it's your own emotional intensity or somebody else's. And so there he was left to himself, crying, praying, very human, 
meeting his own fallibility, his own weakness, all of that. Very interesting that that didn't get edited out of the story because it almost always does. But it got left in, and I'm glad it did get left in because at least it provides us a kind of reminder that it, it doesn't necessarily mean you, you get a pass on all the difficulties of human existence. What it does mean, and what's depicted in that same story, is after being willing to basically fall apart and ask for assistance and support that he didn't get, then a reconnection with the deeper nature. Okay, thy will be done. I'll go through with it. Then a reconnection. But if he hadn't had, had allowed himself to have the human moment of frailty and weakness, I don't think he would have found the connection again to the deeper aspect. So our humanity, as imperfect as it is, is a really important part of the spiritual journey because it's also the vehicle through which, number one, we come to our realization and through which we keep connecting and reconnecting and reconnecting and reconnecting. And it keeps grounding us, you know, so we don't get just lost in the sort of potential for arrogance or narcissism that can develop even in fairly rarefied depths of spiritual realization. Um, it's always a, a danger. And the, the counterpoint for that is right there. It's your humanity. That'll always put, put your feet back on the ground. So, thank you all for being here. It's a delight to be back here and spend this time together with you. Yeah. Real joy. Real joy. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website. CIIS.edu slash podcast.